Hey there, and welcome back to the From His Top Podcast. Picking up where we left off last week, our guest Samuel Vernon flips the tables. We talk about From His to Hot, academia, heuristics and decision making, implicit bias, gatekeeping, and some of the fallacies of modern fact checking. We hope you enjoy this discussion. Pleased to have with me today, the one, the only, Michael Lewis, who is uh, creator of the From Is to Ought, the host of the From Is to Ought podcast, part of the Freedomcast Network, and also a co-founder, well, the CEO of the Freedomcast uh, Network, Michael Lewis. Thank you for joining me. Hey, thanks, Sam. Uh, I should also mention just very quickly, I am definitely not the one and only Michael Lewis. I'm also not the one and only Michael Lewis in my direct lineage. So, uh, but I appreciate it and I'm happy to be here. So, yeah. Well, you're the, the, the number one in my life. So oh, thank you. You're quite welcome. Me and Mike go way back. We've known each other for quite some time. Uh, so this will be fun. Mm-hmm. Mike, you have, you are the host, of the from his dot podcast. Mm-hmm. Generally. What is your podcast about? So I saw a phenomenon happening that was playing out in public discourse where people would point to a lot of information uh, that was out there. And there's a lot of times conflicting information about the same story. Okay. So you might hear people argue about just as an example for about climate change. And what I saw was a lot of people talking past one another and not really trying to ground their conversations in some set of facts or to make their assumptions explicit and try and build up from there. It was more just, you know, I kind of read this or I stumbled across this on the internet and people talking past each other. And it just wasn't a very compelling way to have a lot of those discussions. And I, I think that the evidence for that is that it doesn't seem like we're getting resolution to a lot of issues. It seems like we keep unearthing things that, that divide us further and further. And there are institutions like the Academy and uh, other dynamics like politics that I think actually make these worse, even though they're supposed to be kind of domains where either this is permitted or where at least this stuff is considered more deeply. And so I started looking into those domains, kind of looking for some answers. And you know, I have a background in the natural sciences and very focused on data analytics uh, in the time since my my undergraduate training. And what I found was that there's two issues as far as I can tell. One is a lack of a rigorous framework by which people can analyze the world and take inventory of the relative credibility about facts. So that's kind of the is component. But then there's also a lack of awareness or and or a lack of humility, depending on to whom you're speaking, about whom you're speaking and in what context, for the role that each person's kind of internal philosophy is playing in how they interface with these material facts. So the, uh, well, we'll say philosopher, but he was many things, but uh, David Hume has this notion that he popularized that is, can you go from an is to an ought or from a set of is's to an ought? 
And so I thought, well, that's a catchy enough title for the podcast. And whether or not I, I agree with Hume's prescriptions, uh, it gets the point across about that there's this tension between people kind of not having a framework for facts. And then also perhaps people, myself included, sometimes take for granted some philosophical assumptions we're making that are not at the level of facts that also show up in how we debate or think about ideas. And so I thought, okay, well, I'll try to integrate this where we can talk about the material standing of certain arguments that are playing out in social discourse and separate those from any sort of statements of ought. But once we've recovered the facts, then can we impose some sort of constructive or at least not deconstructive framework to uh, move us forward? So that's that's kind of why I started that or why I've chosen to focus on that for the podcast. Yeah. So you said a lot of good things there. And I think there's some, a great opportunity. Well, there's a great overlap between your podcast and mine Agreed. because you said <clears throat> you're presented with a set of facts and you think there is a lack of, I think you said rigor where most people, how, how they analyze such facts. So the you know, climate change or whatever, some, somebody, some statistics out there and some people will look at those and either just take them at face value or disregard them or whatever. But it's it's it would behoove them to figure out exactly what's going on behind, you know, within the data to kind of figure out what's going on. But also that there's another component where the person, so I don't maybe you can clarify. Is it the person who's creating the data that has the implicit implicit bias or the the philosophical underpinnings that maybe is influencing where that data is going or the subject the person who's reading the data that would read into the data with uh, some sort of philosophical underpinnings is it both is it one or the other well i think that a lot of times when we have these conversations with you know peers uh, or even strangers online we're not debating typically the factual standing of some things really what is the focus of the discourse typically is i want to do x you don't want to do x you want to do y or i want to do x and you think x is prejudicial in some way or will disadvantage some people in some way or something like that right so th that's just the general case where we're often we're debating the prescriptions less so the factual standing but in order to get to the prescriptions, I think that you need both a, a philosophical framework about which one can be can honestly state their axiomatic assumptions and their kind of epistemological worldview, as well as the facts that you're going to bring to bear on the conversation. And, and I'm not, I am, one thing I really want to say as a quick aside is one of my biggest pet peeves about academics is that they will claim certain facts are not relevant for a situation. You, you see this a lot with people who are, are philosophically consider themselves rational, even though rationalists, strict rationalists, lack sufficient, and this is a way overgeneralization, but strict rationalists, in my opinion, in my experience, have insufficient evolutionary training. Um, I think evolutionary training would strengthen 
if it could be properly integrated, would strengthen the rationalist framework rather than undermine it. But um, but it requires some changes. So anyway, the point is, you asked whether or not, is it the researchers who have these, you use the word implicit biases, because I know we're going to talk about that later, one of the episodes I discussed. But what you're meaning is, is it their assumptions that are bleeding into their research, or is it the person reading the research who's reading in their assumptions about the results? I think it can happen in both directions. I don't think most people are reading actual research results. They're reading a journalist's perhaps good faith, perhaps not, perhaps ideologically motivated, perhaps not, understanding of science as they've come across. It could be directly because that journalist read it, or it could be because they heard a friend talking about it. It could be a million different things, because they read another news article about it. So most people are interfacing with the domain of human understanding as laid out by material facts, if we want to say that that's what academic publishing is in the best case. They're not directly interfacing with with those papers. And, and that's actually another reason that I think the podcast is useful is I want to be able to articulate the set of facts without people having to go in and pay $30 a paper or pay hundreds of dollars a year for to be able to license fees to get access to this taxpayer-funded research. Um, so we've already are all paid for it. So maybe if we can talk about it in an intelligent way, we don't actually need to go in and read the papers unless you want to find out more. And and when I talk about people not having a material understanding, I, I don't mean that every layperson should be an expert on everything. I don't think that's doable, and I'm not even saying that's advisable. But when we interface with the facts, you should be aware if someone's making a claim and it sounds too good to be true, or it's, or everything that you come across just so happens to conform to with what you already believe, like maybe that's an indication that that it's time to to kind of read further, either broader or more deeply, or perhaps both. And so it can happen both ways. Typically, the the way I I see it happening is on the researcher side, in terms of the world that I run in, because the world I run in is we're a bunch of very self-important people and genuinely important people. Um, the Venn diagram of the overlap there is small, but they, they're the ones who would consider themselves like the intellectual forebears of, of the discussions that are happening more broadly among lay people, let's say. So I, I see it happening both ways, but, but primarily what pisses me off is when I see it happening with the researcher side, because they're supposed to have a higher degree of training and honesty and rigor. And it's not always upheld. Um, so I figured if I can just present it in a way that's easy to understand and honest and lay out a rigorous framework that can be appropriated as people find it useful, then maybe that will facilitate some good in the world. Yeah. So I, it seems to me that there's, like I said, there's some overlap between overlap between our podcasts. Mm-hmm. I'll describe my approach to such a such such a subject and perhaps you could describe yours. So I in the in the, in the conventional wisdom sense I mean my podcast sense and um my methodology I would be presented with a set of facts or statistics or papers or something like that. And I am more interested I'm sorry I'm 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 less interested in if what's being presented to me is 100% the truth, or it could be, like you said, some journalist's bad faith interpretation of the research paper. 
that doesn't concern me quite as much. I try and pick out if any wisdom or if any set of guiding principles in whatever the facts might suggest. And I would judge it based on that. Maybe like, okay, well, this, this research paper is saying that, um, you know, bacon is actually really good for your heart. You know, I don't know, something, something ridiculous or I don't know. And then I would, I would try and figure out, okay, is there some good in this? And I would try and get some general guidelines on whether or not that particular study is worth following with worth keeping in your back pocket or worth or not. So how would the, how would you come across that? What would your methodology be in the, from this to odd podcast and your, on your side, coming across a set of data where you don't, you have no clue if it's true or not. What would you do? Well, we have to make some assumptions. So we'll, just very quickly, if someone's reporting their research findings, and by the way, this is not does not hold all the time, and, and perhaps we can talk about this now, but but certainly I'll talk about it in an episode on my podcast later on. But we have to assume things like, A, the data as presented or as collected were actually presented and collected in an honest way. That the statistical re- tests and reports or algorithms used um, to interpret results were actually run, right? They're not just making up results. And so if we make those two assumptions, then my point is, hey, can it, can I give you, and this isn't me giving, this is me passing along knowledge that I've had the good fortune to accumulate from many people sm- uh, more intellectually gifted than I um, through an inherited tradition of scientific inquiry. Can I pass along some of these tools so that when you come across research, if someone says bacon is good for your heart, okay? Now you may have a, an initial thing, an initial impulse just because of general awareness and, and life experience that says something. That doesn't smell right. Like there's something potentially wrong about no, that. No, it smells great. Bacon, bacon may smell great, but, but the, there may be a sniff test that, that that claim does not pass. But for me, that's not sufficient to say this is false. Just like if they were to say something like we have established that um, cancer is linked to heart disease. It's not sufficient just because that conforms to what I believe already. That does, or what I would be predisposed to believing, let's say. My predisposition plus the fact that someone says it or claims it is not sufficient for me to then believe that is a statement about factual material reality. And that doesn't mean I believe the inverse, but or the or the converse even. But the the way the rubric kind of against which I can compare the results reported in their statistical tables and how they've developed their argumentation, that rubric helps give me, as applied to different scenarios, give me a sense of the credibility of their evidence. Because you might ask, okay, well, you come across someone who says, um, you come across just, uh, let's say, a traveling circusman who tells you, hey, bacon causes heart disease. And you're like, okay, well, I don't 
I don't necessarily know if you have any expertise on this. Perhaps you do. Um, and then you have a cardiologist uh, who, for whatever, you know, did his dissertation on uh, how pork proteins, when digested, interface with, you know, the heart muscle, let's say, um, or, or the plumbing of the heart. And he says bacon causes heart disease. Well, they have made the same claim. Okay. That claim, whether it came from this circusman, uh, circusman or this cardiologist, independent of the source is either true or false, or it's either true or false. And our understanding of whether it's true or false can be good, bad, or in the gray area at an individual level, but also as a species level. But that claim is, the veracity of that claim is independent from those two. Now, people will say, but if you look at the probability distribution that if someone tells you something as a cardiologist about your heart, just probabilistically, they're more likely to be correct than the person working for the circus. Like, okay, great. But that has nothing to do with when I'm evaluating a claim, the reason the I'm predisposed to trust the cardiologist is because they can present things. They have broader access to a set of facts um, and domain expertise. And the question is, is that domain expertise intrinsic to that person? The answer is no. Like there's a there's a domain of study, cardiology, that they would inform that. And so what I try and do is I say, okay, well, I'm going to go to whatever the domain of expertise is for the particular topic. And, th and sometimes there's multiple domains and that's fine. And I'm not going to be the world's foremost expert on it, but I have a rubric of essentially ways to analyze data and ways argumentation could be developed that I'm going to lay out <clears throat> and we'll test it against that. And oftentimes what you see is they fall short. And so I don't typically find uh, appeals to authority, hmm. very convincing. And when someone makes a claim, I want to have the tools in my tool belt to be able to evaluate that so that I can try and guard against rejecting stuff that I disagree with prematurely or accepting stuff I tend to agree with prematurely. Okay. I do want to ask you about your rubric. And then I do want to go back quickly to the, the claim that bacon is good for your heart just really quickly. But I think <clears throat> first though, because I missed... I, I missed the opportunity to comment when the, early on, you said something like when most people are debating some set of facts, but they're not actually debating the facts they're debating. Um, I forgot exactly how you framed it, but they, maybe the, the presentation of the facts or what the facts might lead to, or what, what yeah. the prescription what should we do with those. Yes. The yeah. prescription. But I seem to think, I seem to I see a lot of people not even knowing what the facts are. Sure. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. So is that not as much as of a, of a problem? You think or no? Yeah. Is it I, in the I, same same wheelhouse? Because, good question. Yeah, because I mean, I see a lot of people who say, "Well, um, climate change," or, or you know, people are. I, I don't. I don't even know of a good statistic to give, but they could be even arguing about the basic facts of something mm -hmm. you know the the how how much co2 is affecting mm -hmm. climate change so we don't we don't even know we sometimes we don't even get to that particular fact mm -hmm. um 
Do you see that? Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. I agree. I see what you're saying. So first thing I'll say is, in order to have a prescription to say, this is what I think we should do. Yeah. One, we have an inherited tradition in the West generally, in in the States particularly, where it says, even if you're not an expert, you get to have an opinion. Mm -hmm. Now, the, the extent to which your opinion may be held in equal or high regard uh, to others is up for debate, but you get to have that opinion. And I think that is a better system than the alternative. So that that's one thing I'll say is whether or not people have access to the broad body of facts on the given topic does not preclude them from having an opinion socially or structurally here. And, and I'm unapologetically, Pro that, which is a very unpopular position as a general rule for academics. So, so mm-hmm. sorry. because they spend, you got to think about if, in fairness to them, what they do is they spend, you know, 12 years of their life, some of them, and, and at least four years of their life, becoming a very narrow expert on a topic. And if you read an internet article about that topic and you're like, ah, I feel like I'm, I have sufficient expertise to opine on this. You know, what they've just been told for the last four to 12 years, depending on what their graduate training looks like, is no, 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 you don't have enough expertise yet. You need to keep learning more. You need to keep mm-hmm. absorbing more. You need to. Mm-hmm. And so then they get out and now they have to interface with, you know, John Smith on Twitter. They're going to be like, they're going to point to their credentials. And it's it's a very low form of argumentation. And a lot of times what they're doing is they're pointing at their credentials, but in a direct way, they'll say something like, well, this conversation should be reserved for the scientific literature, or this conversation should be reserved for people who have genuine expertise, or um, or it's okay if you have an opinion, but your opinion shouldn't be able to be broadcast as uh, easily as mine should be. So we need authoritative voices on the subject. And it's yeah. like, well, I, I think that there is such a thing as genuine expertise and genuine authority that is justified both in terms of expertise, but also justified in terms of um providing more utility for us to make collective sense but mm-hmm. that's not the same thing as saying that i think we should put barriers in the way of some people having their voices heard more broadly and and that system that does that will corrupt the system that generates expertise yeah i completely agree i think um a good idea is a good idea whether it comes from john smith on twitter or whether it comes from uh, a guy with you know three or four letters after their name sure you know a good idea is a good idea. And I do, I'm glad we, you talked about that. Cause you also mentioned you have a, a set of rubric that you follow to analyze it. So if you come across some facts that you don't even know if they're actual facts, um, give me an example of something that's in your rubric, your tool toolbox that, that you would use, you know? Sure. So this is a combination of a few different things. One, it's a combination of appreciating, uh, a branch of data analysis that came out of psych it's very prominent in the more rigorous aspects of psychology called psychometrics, um, which is something like establishing how repeatable and how validly you can demonstrate what you're claiming to demonstrate. It's also a function of the premium I put on prediction. So you might think, I just told you that I, I that I believe, and I think it's inarguable actually, that you can make decisions in the absence of having mastery of all of the information in a given area. And the question is, 
what is the marginal utility of the of having access to those data and that information? What I mean by that is how much does it improve your behavior in the world, right? Or, sorry, not right. I hate when people do that, when they affirm their own argument. So if I, if I say it, pin me down, require me to explain. What I mean by that is, let's say I'm playing poker, okay? How much extra benefit will I get? How much more frequently will I win poker hands or poker games if I understand the laws of probability? And the answer is it's probably a non-trivial amount. So having expertise, if you want to be a really good poker player, if that's some game that we're trying to optimize for, then you should probably learn something about probability. Here's a good heuristic rule of thumb for academic disciplines that are relatively worthless. If they don't improve things in the real world, they're probably not very helpful as a general rule. So that's behind that. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, but again, that's a heuristic. And so heuristics are something you're doing. This is more of a, a, this is kind of like where your podcast, my podcast overlap. A heuristic is a rule of thumb. It's not a prescription from a set of facts. It is a, something that is inherited wisdom or something that is evolved wisdom either across the ages or just, you know, that you've developed in your life experience that you bring to bear in an area. Ah, uh, this just kind of doesn't smell right. I'm going to, you know, this situation seems like it might get dicey. I think I'm just going to remove myself from the situation. And it's fair enough. And the answer, the, what is it a good heuristic? It's like, well, what if the situation was just fine? It's like, yeah, that's not the point. The point is, in general, there's something here. I can't quite articulate what it is. I don't fully understand it. But there's something here. And until I have a deeper appreciation of it, I will operate on this heuristic. So the, the rubric is something like having an appreciation that there's utility for evolved heuristics, that the premium should be placed on not so much human understanding, but prediction first, and then trying to facilitate understanding after we make good predictions. And then thirdly, having a an assessment for the diagnostics of statistical tests, i.e. psychometrics, or for machine learning um, output. And, and there's analogs between machine learning output and psychometrics. And those are relatively trivial. Once you appreciate one, you can you can conceptually appreciate the other, even though the math is different in some situations. So that's kind of the general set of things. Now, I don't bring all of those to bear on any given subject, but what I try to do is if I'm going to talk deeply about a subject with someone, or if I care really, really intensely about a subject, I'm going to try and bring all of that to bear for that given situation. So when my wife and I decide what's for dinner, almost none of that is coming to bear. But for different domains of behavior, uh, more or less of those, uh, some degree of, some greater degree of those things is going to be required. Gotcha. Well, we all know that uh, within your household, your wife's the one that makes all the informed decisions. So, um, <laughs> she picks good dinner options. Um, I do most of the cooking, but when we go out to eat, she's got good restaurants that she likes. So I want to, I want to bring it back actually to a conversation that me and you had. Okay. Who knows how long ago it was? Could have been a year or two or three. We were talking about, I, I feel like this falls right in line with what you were talking about. We were talking about um, finances and mm. I think I had said something 
along the lines of, or no, no, I, I think the conversation went to somewhere like your rule, my rules for personal finance, mm-hmm. maybe that be put some in savings, um, you know, invest some, whatever it might be. My, my rules for personal finance did not apply to like government finances and like how, how governments should, should operate with their money. And I, and I think the, so the, the conversation, it wasn't as if you were affirming this position. I think we were both sort of just bouncing this idea off because I remember specifically my response to this idea. It was the, the smell test. It was something like, you know, for me in my personal finance life, I don't want to go into debt. Um, so I'm going to try hard to stay out of debt, at least as much debt as I can. Sure. And then maybe the idea was floated was like, well, is that the same for how governments should operate or should they not even care? And they should just go into as much debt as they like because of some sort of highfalutin mathematical equation up there that sort of dictates government spending versus individual spending. And I heard that and I didn't have a proper answer for you. Again, you, you weren't affirming this idea. You were just sort of tossing it out there. And I, and I couldn't really, the only thing that I could, that I could answer, I could say something like, well, it doesn't pass the smell test. I, I, I know what works for me and I'm going to take this with a grain of salt, this statistics, like let's say, for example, you know, governments, they can go as much into debt as they want and the economy will still be fine and there's no negatives or blah, 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 blah. I heard that and I was like, well, that doesn't make sense. Um, I can't exactly put my finger on why it doesn't make sense, Um, but I'm going to go ahead and uh, maybe not take that at face value. And, you know, who knows where the conversation went after that, but I, but I feel like then and there was a good example. Okay. Um, So, so tell me what you think about that. And, Expand on that for a little bit. Sure. So I would say that first, I'm not an economist. Economists tend to fashion themselves rationalists. And even if I don't think, you know, I dogged on rationalists a second ago, even if I don't, if not, I'm not particularly compelled by rationality as the ultimate mechanism by sense making. I think something like right reason is much more effective. That doesn't mean I don't think that there are domains where rationality plays out better, uh, typically, and like for example, in markets uh, under particular conditions, or perhaps at the group level as opposed to the individual level. So, you're talking about personal finances versus government finances. Well, well, I mean, I'm just, I'm just saying. There's a, um, I don't, I don't have all the facts in this domain. Sure. Yeah. Nor you I. Know, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm strictly going off of some sort of maybe presupposition or personal knowledge, or maybe, you know, what rubric do I have to mm-hmm. assess this, this claim? Mm-hmm. You know, again, we're not, neither of us are economists. Um, but what would, it seems to me that first of all, that that idea is still kind of crazy. Um, just to, I don't even know if, if, if that's the exact idea that was volleyed in our conversation. By the way, but, the idea, just so that I'm, I'm keeping track, is that government should go into massive debt. Is that right? Well, something like it's it's not the same. So where mm-hmm. you and I would try to avoid debt mm-hmm. because um, debt is just, you know, eventually you're going to have to pay it back. You, you're, you are 
you you're taking stuff that you can't you can't obtain you know you, you're mm-hmm. you, you can't pay for these sort of stuff so it's it doesn't Beyond seem your like means it, right exactly mm-hmm. that seems like bad advice it doesn't seem wise on the <laughs> okay. individual level okay um but maybe there's a different level of thinking and this is why it was such a big disconnect for me because mm-hmm. if it's not me thinking you know my my brain mm-hmm. if it's not wise on an individual level mm-hmm. i can't think of a good way why it would be wise in the society governmental level. Mm -hmm. So am I thinking about this incorrectly? Is there, is there some toolbox that I don't have or. No, I don't, I don't think that's a, so those are good questions. I think there's a couple things there. One, one question you're asking yourself is as we go from one level of analysis, i.e. individual to another level of analysis, i.e. nations, is the phenomenon different? Is it the same phenomenon? That's one question you're asking. Yeah, that's a good. The one. next question you're asking is something like, okay, if the phenomenon is not so distinct as that we cannot draw any insights between levels, meaning, can I impart some analogous logic that I take at my individual level to nation states? If they're at least similar enough that I can do that, then why would it be the case that we should perhaps? take out debt and so and then in the, the third question which is the one you're asking me is and how do you think about this because neither of us have all the all of the facts that we would like to have if we had to make this decision and it were very important to us and for whatever reason we were in a position to do so and what i would say is i do think that there is a an initial like kind of like a seed rubric so whenever you have a simulation you have a, some sort of seed your initial value or your initial conditions that allow the simulation to play out and and when we think about these things, I think that our seed should be non-random, which is uh, we attempt to approximate randomness when we do simulations, but uh, at least as our seed conditions. But the, well, I shouldn't say that universally. That is often the case. But the seed condition here would be something like, well, can I lay out for myself one or more facts that would cause me to reconsider the idea that governments should not take out debt. And if you can lay out those, you know, one, two, three situations where if I were presented, if it were the case, someone could present me with this information and it said X, Y, or Z, then I would consider revising my opinion about the fact that, for example, governments should not go into debt. Yeah, because as I recall, mm-hmm. one of my my reasoning was, I'm not going to believe this because it doesn't make sense on face value. Right. But if you were to present arguments mm-hmm. for the affirmative, um, those arguments had better make some sort of sense. So uh, sure. to take it to take it off of that specific example. I can think of another, uh, well, maybe not off the top of my head, but I do know of several maybe bits of research that might go uh, be counterintuitive, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So where, it you know, we might think that, you know, just for example, you know, we might think that bacon's probably not good for your heart, but there are these situations where your, your research does find that it's actually going the opposite direction that everybody thought, and it's counterintuitive. Mm-hmm. Okay. My argument, well, it's not even an argument, but 
I sort of maybe what I'm what I'm trying to get at is when 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 I'm presented with a study that is counterintuitive to my to what to my background knowledge to my whatever I have mm-hmm. to convince me that this thing is in fact true when it is counterintuitive I need to be presented with non counterintuitive reason like stepping stones like you know yeah, what i mean like right. at some point during this logic it has train, to make sense it has to it has to turn around and go 180 degrees you know what i mean like they're like the, these stepping stones have to be connected you can't just mm-hmm. like i need to i need to be able to see these stepping stones in order for me to be like okay yep you're right mm-hmm. bacon is good for your heart or whatever the, the case mm-hmm. may be um are you looking for do you always see that or in, in, in some of your findings of the, of these research, is that always presented or maybe, I don't know, who knows, maybe, maybe they're not really presented at all, but whenever you let's take, for example, the, some of the research that you uh, have gotten into, into you, some of your episodes, implicit bias, let's say, let's, we can get into that because you probably are of the initial opinion that this didn't make sense. Something, it was seems some, some part of it might've been counterintuitive or at least who knows are the is the is is it, is it being presented such that everything sort of logically flows to sort of get to where they're going or have you been able to find a spot where oh there's some there's some assumptions that's being interjected and it's not it's not flowing yeah. into let's just say for example the implicit bias sure so i'll set the parameters a little bit one this is because there's different Bias research has many bodies to it, and the overlap is not always clear. Some of the bodies inform others, but but particularly what we're talking about is the implicit association test uh, as developed by Greenwald and, and then later popularized further by Greenwald and Bonagie, and they have some other co-authors as well. Explain, but, explain what that is. So implicit association test is, and by the way, this is the sub the subset I looked at was the extent to which this reflects or not reflects the extent to which we can actually get a sense of implicit bias if it exists as it relates to racial attitudes and behaviors. Um, so the, the test is typically delivered where uh, via computer where you've got two equidistant keys on your keyboard and you take one pointer finger, one index finger from each hand and you place them on the keys and people uh, who have a white face or a black face or, you know, different ethnicities, they, they do this as well. Uh, computer genera- generated or, or actual. And what they'll do is they'll flash either positive or negatively associated adjectives. And you typically try and strike whichever key, you, you know, you most closely associate. And, and they do some pre-screens for this so that it's like always assigned, you know, this type of word with this type of person. Wait, so, so, so- Mm-hmm. Is that, or am I understanding this correctly? You are trying to categorize, you're trying to, yeah, categorize a bunch of descriptive words to like two different faces or two different ethnicities. Is that so what this is? It's, it's not necessarily that you're trying to categorize them. What they'll do is they'll, um, they'll say something like, okay, in this round, you're going to associate positive words with uh, blackface. Okay. And so what you'll do is you'll strike that key. Whenever a positive word comes up, you'll strike the key that is associated with that. Uh, with the, like, let's say it's the 
I don't remember what it is, but it's like, let's say it's the D key and the K key, right? And so let's say that you happen to have a, a black face that's associated with D key on the left side of your screen. You'll hit D anytime a positive adjective comes up. And in a different round, you'll strike the K key for the white face when a positive word comes up. And so what it's really doing is it's seeing how quickly, what, what they claim it's doing is how quickly that the difference, the delta between those two in terms of your response latencies is a measure of how more closely associated you associate positive words with one race versus another, right? And on its face, when it initially came out, it's like, maybe there's some promise here. Now, I didn't, I wasn't, I was eight when this research came out. So I didn't come across it until I was much older. Uh, and the body of research has developed since for better and worse. Um, but you said something like, well, I was probably predisposed to being critical of this when I came across it. And the answer is yes, in some ways, because I've seen it weaponized in a way that I think is unjustified, even if the claims were true. So I was skeptical on that front. However, there may be instances where even if I'm skeptical of how people apply things, that there may be just implications of the research, even if I, it makes me uncomfortable. So uh, were you convinced at all with their step-by-step -step logic mm -hmm. into their conclusion? Or at what point in their logic train mm -hmm. were you like, yep, here's where you lose me? So this is another, this is another really good point. No single paper really ever establishes a concrete scientific finding. The best a, a single paper can do is rule out an explanation. I'm talking about non-review papers. So like a singular research paper, not something that's like a meta-analysis where you analyze the data from a lot of other papers uh, to try and come up with some general findings about, about a given research topic. But any given research project is not going to really establish one thing versus another. And, and that's whether it's an implicit bias or you know, in chemistry. And so I'm not going to hold this, the fact that their research can't do that against them. That's just the nature of things. And, and they were relatively, I would say rigorous and in some of their early work uh, and, and honest as well. And so it's not that within their paper necessarily, I was just going along and I would highlight in certain areas and be like, ah, here, there's a gap here in the logic train or circle some result in one of their statistics table and say, this doesn't support what they're claiming it supports. It cuts the other direction or, or it just isn't true. Um, it's not necessarily that happened. That did happen over the body of the evidence I reviewed, which was more than one paper. Uh, and, and by the way, other people have done more extensive, more formal reviews of this topic than than I have, but I, I put it in podcast form because it's probably easier for many people to digest via podcast than it would be for them to go read a book, say, uh, that debunks some of this stuff, or to certainly to read the 40 or so academic papers, you probably would have to, to be up to speed on it. So implicit bias is one of those areas of social science, and you can probably put the science aspect of that in, in somewhat air quotes at this point, because it's one of the areas where of science 
where it's a hot topic socially and politically. It's got, I think in, in 2016, Hillary Clinton had brought it up as a very important driver about, uh, you know, potentially like police behavior in some interactions with people of different races. And I don't know if that's the exact context in which she brought it up, but I know she did bring it up. It's, it's a very hot topic in a lot of bureaucratic roles in companies. You've got a lot of, uh, you know, HR types um, or uh, academic deans who are not uh, research oriented, but are more administratively oriented, who are concerned with these things. Uh, you have policymakers who are concerned with this. So it's, it's one of those areas of, of research that is bled out into many different communities. And that doesn't happen for almost all research, right? So the, or would, does that make sense that a, yeah. Okay. So it's got this broader appeal. More people are talking about it. And remember, I, I'm someone who says you can have an opinion on something without being an expert on it, but, but you should also be someone who, who hopefully says in the event I come across evidence of this type, I would be open to changing my, my mind on it. And so what I did with that was I said, okay, well, the rubric I can bring forward is psychometrically, we can look at how reliable and how valid the tests are because there's well-established measures of that that actually have a very intuitive meaning, not only for what they measure, but why they're important. So I can present that. And then going a step beyond that, we can talk about, is it actually predictive of anything and the relatively underwhelming evidence, despite the, the popular press claims to the contrary, of implicit bias research. And then we can get to something that's more um, epistemological, which is something like, even if you can, let's let's say, for example, that it were the case that the implicit association test as it relates to measuring uh, quote unquote, automatic racial attitudes or beliefs, let's say it were valid, meaning it actually measured that, it doesn't generally, and only that, and it were reliable, meaning the results were reproducible. It's not typically the case, certainly not to the standards social science hold, should hold itself to and has held itself to. Uh, and it actually predicted a, a substantial amount that was robust to different forms of measure of real world behavior. Let's say that all three of those conditions were met. And this is where the conventional wisdom aspect of this comes in. It's like, now what? Now what? Are, are you going to screen every employee for their implicit bias? And you're going to put some in, you know, <laughs> light re-education camps or seminars. You're going to shell out money for people to come in and deliver uh, varying degrees and varying uh, curricula on trainings on this uh, yeah. subject. Like it, it's not clear to me what the end game here is actually once you establish the material facts, even if the material facts were what people claim they were. Right. Say like even if what you're saying is true, there is an is, um, it's unclear what the ought would be. Mm -hmm. Have you come across anybody in a paper, let's say, mm -hmm. giving an ought? Or is that just not generally not done in a paper? Uh, so it depends there, there are, there's different types of papers in, in the academic and just generally speaking, like it's not, that's not like there's something special about academia, right? We just, we <laughs> consider ourselves very important and we have a very particular structure to things. And in fairness, it is how academics get 
acknowledged for their ideas and and promoted and that kind of stuff typically uh so you are well inside of that category as we know mike (laughs) yes brace the academic in in me um the the, there's a typical research paper that says like we're going to investigate one to a handful of research questions and we have some model about how the topics we're exploring relate to each other and we're going to evaluate some hypotheses or we're going to come into a situation and we're going to analyze it and look for emergent themes those are research and there's a bunch of different ways to do those uh, those are research papers let's say let's just put that in one category there are literature reviews which look at the the history and the theoretical development in a given area uh, on a, diff- a given research body. So that's a literature review. There's something related to that called like a meta-analysis, which does kind of the literature review, but it also adds a component of reanalyzing the data aggregated in a particular way and subjecting it to statistical tests to see that, you know, you can think about if there's mixed results in a field, is there still a signal you can extract from the noise, that kind of thing. And that's non-trivial to determine which papers and which results should be included, but but be that as it may. So that's another category. But then there are other papers that are like calls to action. Like, hey, we should probably explore, it. for example, in my, in the field in which I'm getting training information systems, which is, you and I have talked about this many times offline, as an academic discipline, as opposed to a context, it's not very, it's not in particularly great standing as an academic discipline in terms of its own intellectual history. It's really more of a research context is my opinion. And now that I've passed my comprehensive exam, I can say that and not get kicked out of the program. Uh, but there's very, I think that's actually to the benefit of IS researchers because you can draw from the best from multiple other areas of research. And so an example of a call to action that we recently had in our field was a, a call to re-examine the importance of not just statistical significance, which is how you you get some assessment for establishing whether your results uh, held up to your hypotheses, but also is it practice significant or information systems that should matter for real world users and businesses of technology? Okay, so it's like there's, there's other dimensions beyond just the statistical significance. And then there's a relevance component. Um, uh, or sorry, relevance is, is it useful for other, uh, for actual practitioners? And the, and the practical significance was is it if it's statistically significant, that's great, but how how large of an effect if it is? It, how large of an effect does it have? So if it's just accounting for like 10 per, you know, one tenth of one one hundredth of the variance, then that's not like, yeah, great. It's a stable signal, but it's a very, very small signal. Um, and and maybe that's a good use of time, and maybe it's not, but but we should at least consider that when evaluating papers. So there was a call to action on that. And so that was an ought, right? Mm-hmm. But that's not the same thing as saying. Here is a set of research questions that I'm going to investigate. And based on my findings, we ought to do this. What they will tend to do is they'll say, I'm going to investigate these research questions. Let me tell you why I think these research questions are important. There's unanswered questions in the literature. It's very popular. Uh, in like I'm studying fake news. It's very popular in current discourse. It seems like an important problem to understand for a variety of reasons. We'll, we'll lay that out. And so that you might say that that's why we ought to investigate it or, or really the reason people are doing that in their papers is they're saying, this is why you ought to publish my, this is why you ought to consider my paper Mm -hmm. for publication. Mm -hmm. And then let's say that they have a successful research project and they have the good fortune of getting positive results, meaning that their uh, propositions and hypotheses were supported, generally speaking. 
then they'll say, given this evidence, this will have this could or should have impacts on the practice of X discipline or Y discipline in this way. But it doesn't strike me that that's even an ought. That's just saying, hey, this could happen. But what should we do about it? That That's the question. So uh, there's a there's a very overused and, and again, underwhelming model from <laughs> uh, information systems that every information systems PhD student will probably be familiar with at some point. It's called the technology acceptance model. And part of this model is, is that if you make... Uh, if people perceive technology as easier to use, they're more likely to use it. And so what ought we do? We, should, we ought to develop technology that's easy to use, or we ought to develop documentation that makes it, that gives the perception that it's easy to use or something like that. And it's like, well, that is going from an is, it's a statement about this to an ought. Now, I think that, I think that there's a lot of trivial examples where you can go directly from is to ought. And I would, forgive me academics, but I would say that the technology acceptance model doesn't have anything where it's truly counterintuitive and you're like, oh, well, I would not, but for this set of facts, I would not have considered this. Like, for example, if you're developing technology, I don't think anyone is setting out by design, anyone who's developing technology that they want to be used more broadly is not setting out by design to develop technology that is not easy to use. They're like, I'm going to make this as hard to use as possible. So it's not but for the facts I would have done this. However, you can draw a line from the facts to how you ought to develop that technology. And I think that there's, this is like that whole, that's why I think rationalism is, has its place, but I think it trivializes a lot of the complexities of the world. And that's why I think reason is a better, and some people would disagree with me, distinguishing between the two, but I think reason is a better uh, tool than just pure rationality because you can handle more complicated situations where it's not as easy as, oh, we should make our technology easy to use so people use it. So the question is, is there ever a, a situation where there's a, a deep question, perhaps, where they lay out a set of facts and they say, okay, and, th and given these facts, here's how we should interact in, the, in, a, in a situation where there's a lot more ambiguity and nuance and for which there's pluralistic ideas about how we maybe ought to consider acting. And typically, I would say that the answer is no in the research papers, though sometimes you'll get like hints that professors are leaning a certain way. So <clears throat> it seems to me, and of course, I'm not as into the research papers and everything as you are, but it does seem to me that tell me what you think about this. It maybe could even be applied to the implicit bias thing where someone has gone from an, has tried to go from an ought to an is, try to go in the opposite direction um, where, whereby they think, well, <clears throat> um, just to maybe just to keep it within the implicit bias. Again, I don't know the research you do, but, but I'm just going to sort of speak as I, as I understand it. It seems like there is a lot of implicit bias. And we ought to minimize that. Well, so let's go out and find some evidence of it. And they might have produced a bunch of ises that perhaps support that, perhaps don't. But it seems like they've gone the other direction, at least. And it doesn't even, maybe, maybe I'm being a bit too critical, 
of that particular topic, but it seems like that could be applied to other research areas. Tell me what you think about that. Yeah, so this is the difference between, it's in some sense, it's the difference between a positivist approach and an interpretist approach in research, which is, do I have some sort of model I'm specifying in my head before time, and then I'm going to go test that to make a few statements about what is the nature of things? Or have I observed something, some ises, and that is providing me the model, right? So, okay, I, oh, here's this series of ises. And because of the way we make sense, when you have a series of ises, it's just a set of facts you don't care about. You're not going to do much with them. But if it's like facts you do care about, it's going to be integrated into your worldview. And so you may say, okay, well, now that I feel really charged up about this worldview in terms of how we ought to do things, I'm going to go look for a bunch of evidence that supports this and then bring that forward. So I don't, first of all, there's there's space for both in academic research. I think that the most honest thing to do is if you have an appreciation for evolution is to say that in terms of reasoned thinking as it relates to understanding that everything is data first. It's not and some people like one of my advisors would take real issue with this, but it's not that you have some theory that you've developed. It's no, no, you've had some interactions or you've heard from someone about some interactions that you're interested in. Take the implicit bias example. And that gives you kind of like a, a an initialization point for where your beliefs start. It's not that you your initial beliefs were your theory. It's that your theory is a second order manifestation of some other interface you've had with the world. So the question is, okay, well, well, how do these things matter? What do these things matter and how in research? And the answer is, well, whether you're taking an interpretivist or a positivist, or, and there's other schools of investigation as well, approach to the research, you still want to have certain benchmarks you hit. Like, for example, can you rule out competing explanations? And in this, in the implicit bias example, it's like, well, can you rule out the role that novelty plays in deriving differential attitudes towards people or the role that uh, novelty or conversely familiarity? Can you rule out, rule out the role that novelty plays even in your measurement value? So is there just regardless of whether or not it maps onto attitudes, is there just some novelty effect? Oh, something is more new, so I have a slower processing. I'm slower to associate, you know, finger to key. Uh, so you well, I think also, so what if, like, for example, what if, you know, you and I, we know what a face looks like in a typical human face, but mm -hmm. what if I was shown a picture of a face and it had an ear on the forehead? Sure. I mean, does that consider novelty? Be like, whoa. And then would, would somebody be more inclined to be like, oh, that's negative or... So it's, I should be, yeah, the, I should be clear that what they were not as what the implicit bias test does not typically ask you to do is say, uh, associate negative words. It's not typically done this way. Associate negative words with people or say, here, we're going to give you positive and negative words, and you're going to sort them in a way that is uh, 
category. Yeah, I mean, yeah, where you're where you're like trying to typify or trying to get an assessment whether you typify. Well, we're t the most common right. example is we're going to show you positive words, and in one round you're going to be asked to associate with white faces, and the next round you're going to be asked to associate with black faces, and and we'll just take the difference, the aggregated difference between those two rounds. Are you um, saying that is done or is that that's not that, done? That that aspect is done, right? So it's oh. like, okay, in, in one round you'll you're gonna strike um you're gonna associate a positive word with white faces, and the next round you'll associate a positive word with black faces. And let's say you've got 15 trials in each round, right? We're gonna take the average of your 15 trials in one round compared to the average of your 15 trials in the next round, and the difference between those two is what we're mm -hmm. taking as a measure of your implicit bias. And there's all sorts of problems with that. But but that's typically how it's done. There's different. The trouble with this is that one of the one of the issues with this is there's actually many ways people operationalize that research, and some are given the, even the other problems aside, some are more credible than than others. But that's the most typical example. Well, I I actually don't think, um, I think you can actually make a pretty strong case. You said that there's room in academia for both going from is to ought or from ought to is. I actually think you can make a pretty strong case that a lot of the is's come from oughts. So for example, I, I think I read this somewhere where some of the uh, enlightenment scientists, the I think Newton falls under that. Was he in, in the enlightenment era? I can't remember. Um, but one of the reasons to investigate the world around us was the idea that the world is understandable. And it was given to us by a God, let's say, and saying mm -hmm. like, you know, God made the world, we are in it. And, and it is our, it, one of the, one of the um, ideas coming from Genesis is saying like, um, we should rule over the world. We should understand it. We should, we should rule over it. Well, that's, that's somewhat of an ought. And then to actually go out and figure out the world as if it is figure outable, mm -hmm. you know, it's not a word, but. Um, that's going from an ought to an is, and then sure. then then that's like sort of a, a the birth of all the science and the is is. So I actually don't, you know, I think you can make a pretty strong case that you can go the other direction. I don't think that you're making the case you're going from an ought to an is. I think you're making the case you're going from is as axiomatic beliefs to oughts to is is. Well, in that situation you said God made humanity; the world is understandable. Right, but the, the there is an ought there of we should rule over the world. Right, but that was a second order implication. Uh, you're are you saying that as that is a material fact, or you're saying that as that is a that is an ought? That well, that that it, I believe it would be an ought. Okay, that's how I understood you saying it too. But my understanding was you were saying that's a second, that's a consequence of, not fully perhaps, but it is at least partially derived from the fact that the world is understandable, that we were given dominion over the earth, that kind of stuff. Mm. So I, 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 I understand. I understand. Yeah. So that's why I think that if, if, if we peel back understanding, my impression is that there's always some sort of is that is informing ought first. Um, but that doesn't mean that is determines ought at all. I'm not saying that at all. And I, I don't think that for the most complex and meaningful questions, um, personally or collectively that you can go from is taught without an ethical framework. And that ethical framework necessarily constrains things and it constrains your 
the plane of potential options on which you can operate, but that is okay. And, and, and probably even justified in many situations. For example, the implicit bias thing is a good one. What are you going to do with people who, whose minds you can read, even though they don't actually, again, assuming that all of the evidence was as good as people claim it is, it is definitely not. What are you going to do with that information? And the answer is, well, people do actually wrestle with this. And I mentioned this in the podcast episode, but one of the authors, Mazarin Banaji, is against mandatory implicit bias training seminars. She teaches some of them. I would argue there, I, I think there should be some cognitive dissonance there. Unless all she's doing is like rehashing, this is what I've done over my career. I think there should be some cognitive dissonance there, but that's, you know, fair enough. She's, she's intellectually honest and ethical enough to say mandatory trainings should not be required. She also says that she doesn't support uh, mandatory assessment of implicit bias for uh, selection domains. So this would be like hiring, firing, promotion. I'm assuming that's what she means by selection. And she's saying that in part because she also knows, not because of some epistemological aversion necessarily, or at least not fully, um, though she, she, she does have that kind of, that streak to her is my understanding, but also because she knows that there's shakiness of the evidence. She would be less, in other words, she would be less inclined to say that, or she would say it less forcefully, or maybe she would say it less strictly than if the evidence were really bulletproof. If we knew implicit bias was very large, it had a very, in terms of its effect on real world behavior, it could be uh, reliably and validly measured. Uh, we can control for all confounds as a distinct phenomenon. And there's an intervention that remediates that in a way that's just, I don't think she would then say the same thing she's saying with the same degree of, of, you know, um, clarity. In your estimation, you're not convinced that the papers and the evidence for implicit bias, you're, you're not convinced with their research. There, there's, there's something there where you're just like, no, I'm not, I'm not totally on board with what you have to say. Is there, what's the best case? Like, have you come across like the most convincing one that would say, yeah. Are you talking about within implicit bias? Like what would be the most convincing Correct. piece? Yeah. Of, okay. Um, I, I should say a couple things. One, I we talked about that there's multiple bodies of biases research. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, so there are other bodies of bias research, like the more general set of unconscious bias research. So you think about implicit bias as a sub uh, domain of the larger domain of unconscious bias research. There are other aspects of unconscious bias research that are, uh, I'm thinking about behavioral economics, behavioral finance right now, uh, that are more valid. So those uh, for example, we have uh, we're more sensitive to loss than gains, typically speaking. So a ten cent loss is more uh, affects us more than a ten cent gain. Well, that's a deviation from rationality from the perspective in terms of all you care about is the magnitude. So how much you should care is you know the magnitude of loss versus the magnitude of gain. But we don't. We have a there's an asymmetry there. So that type of research, even though that too has been bastardized by some and, and overly applied. Uh, beyond well they stated things beyond the evidence in that domain as well the actual underlying science there seems to be 
more well-grounded. But in terms of uh, Mazur and Bonaggi and uh, I forget the guy's first name, Anthony, Anthony Greenwald, I think. And there's a bunch of like hundreds of others who've done research in this space. The most convincing things I've come across in implicit association test is the meta-analysis, right? So this is that where you aggregate a bunch of past findings together and you analyze things. The meta-analysis that they originally did that was part of a four paper back and forth series with some critics where the critics, I think, came out on top. The critics focused on the fact that one area to which the IIT has been applied is to try and get an assessment about racial attitudes and behaviors. It can implicit bias affect these things. There does seem to be better evidence in some other areas that's been applied, such as for political leanings. Like, is there some sort of automatic response that is not cognitively processed uh, about how you feel about political leanings or, or marketing and brand affiliation? Can I get a sense for what you think about a brand or how, how much more positively you view one brand versus another by using this test? There seems to be some better predictive power when applied to those domains than when applied to interpersonal domains. That still doesn't get to the question about the reliability and validity of the measure because it's not clear still what you're measuring. And you can probably, if you didn't bin it as the same type of research as all these other IAT domains, you could probably have a better standalone, more uh, concrete uh, research body that, uh, that holds up because you're not trying to turn a measure into a construct. But yeah, so th that's, that's one area. I've seen more convincing evidence, at least right. on the predictive so would, side for yeah. this. It would seem to me that I could explain a lot of that phenomenon by the familiarity bias, right? So something that's, you're going to tend towards things that are just more familiar to you. You know, if you grew up in a particular culture mm -hmm. um, and then along comes somebody who's exhibiting a completely different culture, you're going to maybe associate with them slightly less than you would someone who's sure at least initially. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, it seems to me that that would explain away a, a lot of this. Am I wrong to think that, or is that, is that inside the research somewhere or so that this is, so I, I, I'm not an implicit bias researcher, <laughs> praise be, but the, the research I reviewed was not, fundamentally concerned with distinguishing implicit bias from novelty effects or familiarity effects. Now they, they might, they might make the case something like, well, what goes into informing implicit bias is a different question. And so we view novelty and familiarity as contributing to implicit bias, as opposed to something else that we have to control for. That's a separate dimension. But the problem is, theoretically, this is not, my understanding is this has not all been integrated into a robust model that holds up. Nevertheless, your question about familiarity, I'll give one example. This is like anecdata, as people say, right? So it's somewhere between anecdote, anecdote and data. In, this initial, in the initial paper that was put out on implicit bias, and I, I think it was 98, that was one of the, if that was not the first paper, it was one of the first major papers on implicit bias, there was a study one of the studies, I think there were three, looked at Japanese uh, and Korean respondents and how did the same thing. How quickly can you associate a positive word with a Japanese person versus a Korean person? And then the next round, we switch it, right? And they're looking, okay, is there for 
Korean people is they're uh, are they slow, slower to associate positive words with Japanese people and Japanese people with Koreans. And and there's some history between those two countries that would at least theoretically beforehand say that well maybe there would be some animosity between between these groups let's say even if it's you know even if they're all living in the states now and they've been here for 50 years their families have been there for 50 years like great and they're third generation in there still may be some just because of your upbringing but that's the key it's like it's like okay so if it's because of your upbringing what implicit bias researchers have been have said is like oh it's the thumbprint of some sort of prejudice is what implicit bias is measuring it's like no you have no evidence for that no real credible evidence for that but what you may have some evidence of is that exposure to groups other than your own, because right, lack of exposure to other groups is not prejudicial. It's just you grew up in an area where people happen to look like you, for example. But if you have, in the condition where you have exposure to groups other than your own, maybe it does get rid of this effect. And so what, ha what they did was they found, they tested something called moderation. So as they said, they took another measure and they essentially said how much do you have cross-cultural exposure right so not just within your own but cross-cultural and when you look at that what happens is as that goes up the effect for implicit bias goes to zero now what does that mean does it mean that cross-cultural exposure attenuates some form of implicit bias if it exists maybe or does it mean that really what you care about is cross-cultural exposure and if you're saying something like, hey, you should interact with like, we should all kind of like get out of our comfort zone every now and then, or, or you should interact with people who have different backgrounds than you. It's like, that's great. But do we really need hundreds of professors building their careers off of a very fancy way to say that? I mean, I would say no, because I, <laughs> I would think that, yes, familiarity is <laughs> an easy explanation. That's one of those things where it's like, I so, can explain so this away. True. Yeah. So quickly. In, in, in something that to me makes a whole lot of sense. And um, I think a lot of people are turned off by the mountain of statistics that you can find on the internet mm -hmm. is because it seems like you didn't need all this time and effort and energy and taxpayer money to come up with something that seems so self-evident. Mm -hmm. um, and I like the fact that you are taking on some of these, these research bodies and papers and trying to sift through them and to make more sense out of them. Um, because I'll be honest, I come across a lot of these and I mean, I, you know, I have my bias. Sure. I come across a lot of very qualified people giving research or, or at least, you know, summarizing their research or whatever. And I, and I, and I, I have a, I, I take it with a grain of salt mm -hmm. um, for one reason or another. Sure. And that's probably not great. I probably should give it much more of my time. Mm -hmm. uh, that's not to say that I dismiss it, but I think I've developed some, what of like a sniff test mm. for starter to be like, well, it doesn't make sense, blah, blah, blah. And it, like I said, that has its disadvantages. There are more like, more than likely there are those papers out there or there's this research out there that's counterintuitive that mm -hmm. actually connects the dots for me and mm -hmm. actually would be like yep yeah, nope you're you know mm -hmm. you might think it's this way but it's actually the other way right 
And I appreciate the fact that you are taking this on um, in a way that a lot of people can understand. And um, it, it seems to me that, well, first of all, I, I, like I said, I can never do it. Um, I think I have a much more lazy, lazy approach. So I applaud you for that. Um, again, you are perpet- you are in academia perpetually. So uh, I, sh- I should expect that you know what to look for and know what you're doing. Um, but is uh, let's get off of implicit bias for just a second, because I sure, do want to sure. talk to you about gatekeeping, because okay. I think you've done a fair amount of research on that, or at least yeah. reading is probably a better way to say it. Okay. You've, you, you've read mm-hmm. some stuff. Yeah. You've heard, you've heard of someone reading things. I, I've heard of gatekeeping. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so describe what gatekeeping is and uh, give me some examples mm-hmm. of where you see gatekeeping. Why was it? Why is it bad or sorry, good? could be good or bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and give me some aughts that might come from gatekeeping. Oh, okay. That's interesting. All right. So you'll have to, if I fail to address one of those, please bring it back up. Um, so I, the, the reason I distinguish between reading and research is because if people were to go look for my paper on gatekeeping, for example, they're not going to find one. I mean, I have one. It's right here. Uh, and I, you know, it's part of the PhD Why don't you program. show it to the camera real quick and then we'll get it out there. Or if that is just a PDF that you printed. <laughs> no, it's uh, it is a PDF I printed, but I also I also wrote it <laughs> of like a recipe that you're going to make later tonight. <laughs> Here's my 17 page recipe on how to make a cake. Um, no, okay. So gatekeeping is the first thing to say about gatekeeping is that it's a colloquial term. We use it in everyday life, and it can mean different things to different people. But when it's talked about in a relatively rigorous way, it's talking about a collection of dynamics and features that contribute to the function and structure that allows ideas to propagate or, or people to move uh, up, down, or between different boundaries. And those would be the gates and it tra- it tends to model that, so it can be a it's like one of these theories that can be kind of a a meta theory, um, because you can think about well, what's the gatekeep? Who defines what gatekeeping is? Who are the gatekeepers for defining gatekeeping? And it's like oh god, like what have I just done, right? And it's like once you just untie that knot, then you know you get your your Nobel Prize and you move on. Actually, probably not these days, but but I got interested in gatekeeping because. A lot of the podcasts I listen to would talk about this phenomenon as it relates to the news media. Yeah. And- so real quick, real quick, I just want to say, uh, or at least state Please. the um, when I hear gatekeeping, I think of somebody somewhere mm-hmm. throttling information mm. where it wouldn't get to me, or it might, or they might say, you know, you know, they might, it might be censorous where they'd say like, okay, you're not going to get this information. Mm-hmm. Or they could flood me with information that's maybe not true. Um, but anyway, they're, they are controlling how much of that information I'm receiving. Is that, is that accurate or no? So that's 
you know, that is an example where gatekeeping could be playing out, right? There, there would be a gatekeeper. Let's say that you were, let's just, let's go with an example. Uh, you're on, we're on Minds. It's a social media site, uh, somewhat like Twitter, but probably a little healthier uh, in some ways and perhaps a little less healthy in others, but certainly less censorious than Twitter. And so you might say, okay, well, who's gatekeeping my access to information on Minds? And the answer would be, well, perhaps you are. Who are you following? What type of ideas do you seek out? Are you precluding yourself from certain channels of information? Or you might say they're, they're, the algorithm is, maybe you're turning off certain features. I don't want to see anything that has adult content in it. So there will be certain news stories that you just don't come across, right? And that's a function of your choice and the algorithm. Yeah. There might be some stories. There might be um, trust and safety teams at some of these social media companies, not particularly at mine's, um, who say, well, some trust and, also trust and safety teams would probably say something like ISIS beheading videos are not something we want to propagate on our platform. So we will censor that. So it might be what might gatekeep you are second order effects of social norms. Like this is not something we should see. But the problem and what you're getting at, I think, is there are other social norms that some people agree with. And that in a pluralistic society are unjustified to impose on others. That's really interesting um, because I really, I don't think I've ever thought of, thought of it like that, but yeah, maybe some social norms would be gatekeepers mm -hmm. to say, Hey, maybe, you know, child porn, let's just say mm -hmm. um, we don't want that in our society. And so we're going to exclude it. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Okay. And so, and, and people say, well, the norm itself isn't, doesn't gatekeep. And the answer is, well, it depends on what you mean by gatekeep. But further, social norms manifest in terms of organizational policies and practices, at least online, at least on social media. We can say that that's true because otherwise, why do you have a trust and safety team? And because you're going to be trying to instantiate what you think are justifiable rules, and those rules are going to be informed by social norms. So you can have organizations that play a role in gatekeeping dynamics. You can have individuals play a role in gatekeeping dynamics. You can have uh, kind of normative beliefs play a role. You can have professional societies play a role. So like, for example, if you wanted to be a, a lawyer, the passing the bar exam, right? That, that credentialing process is a gatekeeper. Uh, you know, you're, you're starting to become a professional engineer. You are a professional engineer, but to be, have the title, PE, you have to go through a process. Well, that disciplining process uh, gatekeeps, right? It excludes people like me from saying I'm a gatekeeper. I am a professional engineer, and and I might say, well, what are you doing? Like you're you're not allowing me to fully do whatever the heck I want to do. And people say, yeah, but we don't want you building bridges, Michael. And <laughs> and I, you know, at some point, whether I think I should build bridges or not. I'm not driving over the bridges I'm building. That's for sure. And so you can think about these, again, that we're talking about gatekeeping as kind of a blend between the technical academic side, but also the colloquial side. But again, the, the dynamics, uh, processes, and structures associated with how people move up or between domains or how ideas propagate, that's typically what I think about for gatekeeping. How is it portrayed in the news? How is gatekeeping... Portrayed, or is it, it, sorry, not portrayed. Sorry. 
I didn't mean portrayed. How is it? How does it manifest in news? So in news media, the first thing I say, I suppose, is that the notion that gatekeeping dynamics are important in news media is not new. So even though we think about gatekeeping in news, and by the way, I want to give a shout out. There's Kurt Lewin is kind of the first prominent the earliest prominent researcher I can find who talked about gatekeeping and he talked about it in a different domain. He's kind of like a forerunner of social psychology back when social psychology was actually interested in interesting things and wasn't in crisis. And I believe Pamela Shoemaker is from communication. I think she's communications anyway. She's also a very prominent researcher, um, perhaps the most prominent contemporary researcher and writer on gatekeeping. Uh, but my particular influence within my field of information systems was, uh, I think her name is Kareen Nahan. I'm not sure. She's a professor at University of Washington in, in Israel. And actually, I just got in contact with her. I was able to tell her, like, hey, I really appreciated your writing uh, for the first time yesterday. Uh, so this is fortuitous because we, we're slowly converging on a point where gatekeeping dynamics in news and on social media we're going to risk things really boiling over if we don't get a grip on things. And right now the conversation is being steered by a select group of people in a very particular way. And they're not being honest about how they're driving it and why they're driving it, regardless of whether they're correct for their certain prescriptions or not. Sorry, that's no, very general, but I just want to give a shout out to those, those three. Um, who, who might these people be? So again, Kurt Lewin, no, 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 no. The people oh. that you said was... Oh, oh, okay, okay. So the people driving... Uh, so trust and safety teams have a, a very large role to play here. So that's within each platform. They have these teams. But there's also stuff like uh, third-party third, part, third party fact checkers are mm. playing a very large role. So these fact checking bodies. Um, and each By the way, each one of these has their own nuances and valid um, structures to them, as well as uh, an ideological slide of hand going on or slides of hand going on as far as I can tell. And I've been relatively rigorous in trying to, to map these out, but we won't go into those details unless you're curious. But so we've got trust and safety teams. We have third-party fact checkers. We have uh, a bunch of NGOs, so these like kind of non-governmental organizations that research, quote-unquote, and sometimes they genuinely research, sometimes they don't. Sometimes it's just ideological drivel. Uh, fake news, misinformation, disinformation, propaganda, rumors on social media uh, to try and understand them, to try and inform policy. What should we do at a legislative level? level? What should we do at a regulatory level? What should companies do uh, for their own terms of service? Uh, that kind of thing. Uh, what what What... Can, can we develop market alternatives that make the nature of the discourse so uh, as a whole healthier, that kind of stuff. So there's a bunch of different aspects that are here. So it's, but it's typically researchers or research bodies in the form of NGOs typically, but not always uh, trust and safety teams, third-party fact checkers. And then uh, there's a fourth category. Oh, journalists. And, and these journalists will say something like, a very prominent example from two years ago, maybe a little more than two years ago now. Yeah, a little more than two years ago, I think. During the pandemic, uh, there's an app called Clubhouse that kind of took off. It's like a podcasting app, except that really all it is is a discussion forum where 
people can come in and a bunch of people can all have a conversation on a topic at one time. And you can think about, you know, when everyone's locked in their home, this can be a very popular app. Anyway, so this, uh, I forget which outlet it was. It was either Washington Post or New York Times, but they said something like the unfettered conversations that are being allowed to take place on Clubhouse. And it's like, what the hell do you mean? Mm. Like, would it be an unfettered conversation if me and my buddies just went out to a bar yeah. and we talked about politics in a way that was not socially desirable? Like, am I, are we not supposed to have those conversations? I'm yeah. not. And so, so there's a, there's a activist streak to journalism that is also a very large, trying to assert itself as a very large gatekeeper in this space as well. So here's a question then. Should there be fact check? Like, should there be fact checkers? Let's start there. Should there be fact checkers? Do you think it's a good idea that fact checkers exist and there's these third party fact checkers that just go around checking facts? I have no problem with an organization claiming that they check facts. I have no problem with an organization being deemed by a majority of a society as an authority on material claims as they present themselves in news and social media. So I have, but I do have an issue with when fact checkers are not actually doing fact checking and they're claiming that they're fact checkers. I have an issue with that. And I also have an issue with the naive assumption that just sticking a fact check label on some piece of information is going to produce the intended responses where those labeled credible are viewed as more believable and, and therefore people act more pro-socially around those than those not labeled credible. Well, it seems to me there's a, there's some tension here because yes. there's, You don't have a you don't have an issue with some company that's just out there, you know, checking facts. But it seems like it could very well devolve into they just slap the label on it, or they put a, a their their bias or their assumptions in there, or who's checking their facts? What if they're lying to you? How are you gonna who's who's checking the fact checkers? Seems like there could be some some issue there. Well, Sam, who would check the people who check the fat checkers. Exactly. This is what I mean by it's a meta, it's a kind of a meta theoretical space, right? Cause you, it turns very quickly into a nesting doll, like mm. an infinite nesting doll. Yeah. You have this recursion where how do you break the cycle? And the answer is you don't get cynical about it. This is, it, this is an ought and it's based on some is's, but it's not purely derived from is's, but you don't get cynical. Because what cynicism will allow you to do is it'll say something like, well, I'm only going to ever believe what I already believe. And I'm going to ignore every, I'm going to ignore everything fact checkers. Fact checkers tend to fact check things that I tend to believe as, they tend to fact check them as false or partially false. So I'm just going to throw a negative sign in front of what, whatever they believe. So you might think about people who are, uh, you know, have certain beliefs about uh, elections in 2020. And they say, well, the fact checkers lied to me about uh, the degree, extent, and kind of <clears throat> Donald Trump's relationship with Russia in 2016. So I'm just going to throw, I'm just going to assume that they're lying to me now too. I understand that impulse, but I don't think it's justified. I'm not just, you shouldn't get cynical to where you just only ever find ways to reaffirm your beliefs. And by the way, this happened, and then I, I'm using a political example here. And I wouldn't use this probably in academia because their sensibilities are all off. If you offend them politically, despite 
what I've been told. My impression is that they do not tend to uh, handle countervailing evidence very well. But maybe I'll, maybe someone will break that cycle in the future. Um, if you were to say, okay, well, what that same dynamic that plays out with what I just said with fact checkers, that same dynamic also played out with Donald Trump himself, for example. People were so uh, upset about the fact that he could be president and, and that million, tens of millions of people supported him that they gave themselves license to just throw a negative sign in front of whatever he said. And that's not what is true. And, and my point is, no, no, no. Fact-checking bodies, I don't necessarily have a problem with. I don't even necessarily have a problem with, yeah, I don't have a problem with a social media platform saying, we want to partner with these fact-checkers and in some way. What I have a problem with is the fact-checkers not fact-checking. And the problem, it, my problem is something like this. The types of questions and propositions that are subject, that are fact-checkable, meaning they can be falsified at the time of the fact-check, is a much smaller subset of all of the claims and information put out on social media. And people will say stuff, yeah, but like context matters. And I agree context matters. But whenever you say something like, John Smith said X, and you rate it false, and then you're saying, okay, well, here's why we gave it our rating. While X is true, and that's like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And then you say, but here's some context that means you should you shouldn't care about it. Yeah. It's like that's not a fact check. And what's going to happen is that they're going to get more and more clever with how they disguise admitting X is true. Probably, hmm. I suspect. Unfortunately, my, my issue with this whole thing is that I tend to think that I first of all, um, I think that all these ideas that need to circulate. Um, there really should be as little as minimum necessary gatekeeping as possible. Um, by I guess maybe by that I mean since censors uh, censoring. Um, but I'm just worried about the fact checkers out there because even if I come out and I say a, a, some incorrect fact, okay, uh, I I believe that enough if if it's a if it's a bad idea or if it's or if it leads to a bad idea or if it just doesn't make sense, I tend to think that most people, not everybody. But I think most people would hear it and those who maybe do act on my facts, that's bad. And they wind up dead. Uh, obviously that would not be good. Um, but I think an, an, if enough ideas and facts get out there, people will sift through and find the truth. I think that's, you can sort of think that that's, that's kind of like what the internet is in general. If you've ever tried to like fool the internet and you know, people somebody out there is going to be like, Hey, wait a minute. That doesn't make sense. And they'll post uh, something that does make sense. And then that will just spread like wildfire. And it's like, yep. All it needed was that one guy to just be like, well, you're wrong. I'm right. And then it sort of just exploded, you know, that that's my sense of it. And so I'm a, I'm, I tend to be a bit more 
reserved when it comes to the amount of censoring and the amount of fact checking that goes on. That's now, just my your amount of fact checking or amount of censoring or both. Because those are not necessarily the same thing. I would say both. Okay. And Why I understand the censoring. Why fact checking? Well, it seems to me that that is nothing more than you're wrong, I'm right. So what's wrong with someone saying that? No, no, I, that's why I said it. I said it's not. Oh, um, I thought you said you were, you were more hesitant towards fact checking. No, no, I'm I'm hesitant because I'm afraid that what that leads to, like you said, to this regression of, mm -hmm. sorry, this this constant regression of who's checking what and mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. Um, I don't, I would rather, okay, so hold on, let me back up because okay. I, I do understand the distinction. It doesn't bother me at face value, just like you said, that someone's doing some fact, che fact checking because that's essentially saying, hey, you're wrong, I'm right. Mm -hmm. In fact, uh, that's, I think, how the truth is found right. in, in, in the setting, uh, mm -hmm. sorry, in, in most situations. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm completely for that. Uh, but I'm, I'm worried that, like you said, there's, there's some bad faith and people are just being, being counterfactual to be counterfactual. Mm. Um, yes. So that's what I'm worried about. Yeah. So uh, there are, there are some people who are being counterfactual just to be counterfactual, but would you, would you want them censored? Uh, no, I wouldn't. Okay. Um, all right. And so maybe that's what I was getting at is that if I hear a bunch of, I mean, I think it's healthy to mm -hmm. see, to, to hear one person say, Hey, I'm right because of this. And another person says, Hey, you're wrong because of this. And I'm right, right because of this, because if all you hear is I'm right because of this, you know, that's how you get into a bubble. Yeah. So yeah, obviously I, you, you want as many people arguing over the truth as possible so that when it comes out, mm. I, I am of the belief that you don't really have to protect the truth. Mm. The truth, once it's out, it's out. It's It will fend for itself. People will hear it. People will understand it. People will digest it. They'll, mm -hmm. they'll spread it. It seems to be, and I don't know if, if self-evident is the right word, but it, it seem, people tend to gravitate towards it. And so yeah. you don't, you don't, it doesn't need to be protected by a narrative. It doesn't need to be to be uh, shielded by censor, you know, censoring the other side because you might damage mm -hmm. the narrative. It doesn't need any of that. Okay, that's my that's that's my stance on all of this. So that's good. I, I think that's you know, it's I think that can function both as an axiom, but also there's good empirical evidence to support what you're saying too, mm. to kind of re to buttress that. But because I I'm hearing, I will. Uh, well, I was going to name the professor, but let's put it this way. I'm talking to a professor who's in Boston, and I'm trying to convince him to come on the podcast so that we can have a discussion about his utilitarian as, uh, utilitarian and rationalist perspective he's taking to the fake news problem. What does his name rhyme with? <laughs> no. <laughs> if if, if a, you know another six or nine months passes and I st we're still dancing around this, um, then I will like, you know, say, Hey, I'd love to have you on the show in a public way, um, on, on the freedom cast network, but you know, it's a genuine 
wanting to talk and he's very sharp and considered. And he has some really interesting ideas about market-based approaches or market mechanisms, both generally in the market, but also in the marketplace of ideas about how this could potentially work. But I think some of the other things he's glossing over are wrong. And when he asked for counterexamples about fake news at one point, um, I don't know this for sure, but I think it may have turned him off to talking because I said something like, oh, there are examples of fake news um, from legacy media or from a um, a different political perspective than just what you're considering, even though those are also good examples. So uh, on the fact-checking side of things, I agree with you that in some sense, you know, we're taking this very pro-technical view, pro-technology view. It's going to, it's going to, you know, plant us out a thousand seeds and the, and the flowers will flourish or the best, the best will, you know, the best ideas will eventually rise to the top. Yep. And I, I, I agree with that. I think when people try and prematurely foreclose that, what they're doing is they're not saying, you said the truth doesn't need protection. They're not trying to protect the truth. Now, they might psychologically be trying to preserve their own mental state yep. so they don't collapse into some yep. state of chaos. I agree that, that there is an element of that that seems to be operating for some gatekeepers as opposed to others. But there's also an aspect where they're not trying to protect the truth. They're trying to protect people. And you even you acknowledged it. You said, oh, if I put out you know some bad, like some really bad information, even if I genuinely believed it, right? So like forget the forget that I'm like a bad actor who's just putting bad information out. Let's say that I was a good actor, but I was wrong. Am I allowed to be wrong online? Mm -hmm. And the answer is like, well, <laughs> who knows at this point whether that's going to, whether we're going to continue to allow that or not. But but some of these people would say, I'm, we'll talk about vaccines, I guess. Um, whatever you think of the COVID-19 vaccine, it is fair to say it is, atypical relative both in terms of its technology and in terms of its rollout and in terms of its public reception as compared to most vaccines across history or most of its contemporary counterparts in terms of the vaccine array that people are administered so let's say that the vaccine worked as well as we were promised it was and its effects were as robust as the initial claims were and there are no severe side effects. Let's let's say that it's the ideal case, right? And someone comes out and says, vaccines don't work. Um, <laughs> So-and-so is putting microchips in your body, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There will be people who, for a variety of reasons, will be susceptible to believing that information. And And let's also... God forbid, and it's very sad how many people COVID has killed, but let's assume that COVID is also much more deadly than it than it turns out it is. Because, you you know, I put that information out, right? Oh, this vaccine is just a microchip. It's not going to provide you any um, positive effect. Some non-zero number of people might not get the vaccine. And then you multiply that times their probability of being exposed to the disease and their pro times the probability of death, given that you have the disease. And it's like, okay, well, now what? Like, I'm responsible for some fraction of people dying. And so what the good faith interpretation of a lot of the motivation for these gatekeepers is, oh, we're not trying to protect the truth or, I, or our ideology. We're trying to protect other people. 
Do you think, though, that you're responsible in that scenario for their death? Uh, if I, well, for sure, if I knew what I was saying was false, then yes, there would be moral culpability. Yeah, if I if if I knew what I was saying was false and I wasn't saying it in a way that was like humorous because it was false, right? Like if I were if I weren't making a joke, uh, then yeah. I think that there's some moral culpability on me, whether or not that means that the platform has should admonish me is perhaps a different question, but I do think there's some moral culpability. What? Okay. Would, would the moral ramifications stop at just you lying or would it be on the, would the, would that person's death be on you? Even if you knew what you were saying was a lie. I see what you're saying. Um, that's a really good question. So the, for sure, the lie would be, I'd be there, there's moral culpability for the lie. Right. And my question is, does it go beyond the lie? Right. If I say, because I, 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 I don't even, you know, I, I'm not even so sure that I know the, the answer to this, but it seems to me that there is, people aren't autonomous robots. Someone's at the other end of this making their own decisions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And here's what I would say. I'd say if you're on the information receiving side, because this is typically how I think about it, is less from the me as gatekeeper side. I think about it more as me as the technology user side and someone who's very interested in in the news. I just I find civics and politics interesting, and I I like to watch and comment on and formulate ideas about how we collectively sense make and move forward, for better or worse. Um, so I typically think about this from the perspective of the person consuming information. So given that we're not autonomous robots and given that that way of thinking about it, what I would say is that if you're someone who is predisposed to think something about vaccines, then you should really, really seek out potential evidence that could disconfirm your belief. And you should have a very clear idea in your head about what that evidence might look like. So you're not going search you need a clear idea about what that evidence might look like. So you don't go search for something that you don't know what you're looking for. Uh, right. So th they have some, they right. have some responsibility. Right. So yes. So I would say that the individual making the decision has some responsibility as well too. Yes. However, when these people are talking about gatekeeping of information, um, right. Some form of censorship or conversely, right. They can think about that as noise, Right. Do we want to reduce the noise? They can also think about sing signal amplification. We're going to make authoritative news uh, more prominent. So, you know, two sides of the same coin, pretty much, uh, at least as far as I'm concerned. Just which, which dial are you turning? And I think that given a, for any short run, you can say that, oh, we were better off to censor in the short run than in the long. That, that, that there are situations where people can make the case, oh, we're better to censor the information. But given any sort of longer-term perspective, that collapses. For the reasons you mentioned earlier, essentially, that you need to have protracted discourse between people and ideas that disagree with each other and have them do battle cognitively uh, over time uh, pursuing the truth 
in order to have any chance of getting there. We should not presuppose prematurely that someone someone has access or somebody has access to the truth. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I agree. And I also think we are in dangerous territory mm-hmm. if it, it becomes uh, accepted truth that if I say something online mm-hmm. and that leads to some person X on the other end of the internet doing something that's now my fault. I'm, I, I fear that if that is accepted as truly my fault, mm-hmm. what follows that I think is right. certainly not good. Yeah. That's the other side of this is that people who will say, Oh, well, well look at, we want to reduce harm. Yep. And it's like, yeah, yeah. You're trying to reduce harm of a particular type within a very relatively short time horizon. But you're assuming, well, you're either assuming that that your intervention causes no other types of harm, or you don't care about that relative to the uh, types and magnitude of harm on the other side. And your point here is well taken. No, there there is harm that is produced. For example, if you can weaponize, if people can say, oh, well, these type of ideas harm me or my... And, and by the way, we should set aside a category of where we both would agree that direct calls to action if i put out a direct call towards violence online then i do i have moral culpability no questions asked it's not to excuse others who go out and commit pardon me commit those acts but i do have moral culpability no there's no not really any ambiguity about that would would you agree yes of course I was trying to, I was trying to like, like think, how could I like, what would be a jokey way of just like going through this and just like having you be like, Whoa, wait a minute. No. Yes, of course. Yeah. So, so aside from that, you know, those situations, I think we actually have relatively good jurisprudence in, in the United States and over our, you know, the development of our culture that provides us with ideas about how to balance type one versus type two error, false positives versus false negatives. And I don't think that putting harm reduction as the primary goal, when you can't define harm in a way that is pluralistically defensible and doesn't seem ideologically prescribed, I don't think that that's a, a good thing for to try and optimize for. I think we should try and optimize for something like, uh, developing a marketplace where ideas can be can be shared and put into battle with each other when they con- come in conflict with each other in a way that's in the landscape and domain of ideas even if it's people being nasty online because if you don't let them be nasty online here's what's going to happen they're not going to just say like oh i was wrong yeah that will get kinetic eventually and that's not a, it's not a threat it's an observation you're going to produce more harm if you define harm as uh, hearing nasty words mm-hmm. because I feel like once you do that and you, you, you create this group of people that are now in harm's way by hearing naughty mm-hmm. things, mm-hmm. then they may never come across those mm-hmm. harmful words. And who, you know, I think we know the, the eventually that leads to them just being very uh, bubble wrapped individuals that yeah, have yeah. their worlds shattered you know, later on down in life. So it seems to me that yes, when you, when you define harm with such a low standard, you create a lot of harm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Yep. And and obviously, again, there's there are distinct differences between that and and direct calls to action. That's a whole separate issue. And by the way, you know, you can think about, well, what if I'm from a company perspective, if I just allow people to be just terribly shitty to one another on my platform, there's going to be a non-trivial segment of the market who's just like, I don't want to go on that platform. What the hell? You know, or if I just like allow like, you know, some like extreme forms of prejudice to run wild on my on my thing. And it's like, well, I have a market incentive to to not allow these ideas to just maximally spread and whatever. Is it for example, maybe people don't go to Twitter for their intellectual uh, enrichment. <laughs> There's at least some evidence that that's probably true for a lot of people. But what what you could do is you could provide dials that the in, the user, the end user, could say, "Hey, like, keep this kind of stuff out of my feed." Or they could opt in to like, I don't want to see this as opposed to top down saying you can't see this. Yeah. That's a different yeah. thing. I would hundred percent agree. Uh, is there, what's the best social media company you think does that? Because well, I don't know. I'm, I'm rarely on social media. Well, yeah. I mean, other than Twitter, which is hilarious because I actually use it to contact people who research fake news and research gatekeeping and, tied into a lot of those networks as well as follow the people I listen to on podcasts as well as do all the other like, you know, terrible stuff you do on Twitter, I suppose. Um, so I'm most familiar with Twitter and I don't have Facebook and I have a few others, but they're not particularly active. I would say this one thing to say about, you know, which company does this best. There's, there's one thing that people tend to not appreciate the recommendation, the, the algorithm, people talk mm -hmm. about the algorithm. It's a series of algorithms and it's a series of algorithms from the machine learning AI perspective, but it's also a series of algorithms in terms of human decision-making trust and safety teams at the top saying, here's our algorithm. You're not going to see this. There is a lot of that. You know, we're not going to have this on the platform. And, and again, justified and unjustified instances of that, but the recommendation algorithm is you know people give it a lot of grief because it's like oh well it can facilitate echo chambers and it's like yeah but also you are potentially reducing like harm like if i'm not interested in like the nasty vitriol of politics and i want to get on twitter it's gonna be a little hard but i could probably find some sub community on twitter where i you know can just go and it's it's that to me it's not everything else um the problem is that there's, you know, that so much of it's centered around news and that when when people are using these social media platforms to get their news, then the recommendation algorithm becomes a, a political weapon to be wielded. And, and both by these tech companies, both uh, by the regulators of these tech companies, but also by the users, because uh, there's ways you can try and like game the algorithm to like try and get your your content in front of more people. Now, I'm not saying that's a that that's a moral ill. I'm just saying it, it can happen. So the recommendation algorithm is one, despite the fact that these algorithms get lambasted all the time in in the press, it functions in the way where you know that the flip side of the coin of your echo chamber is that you you're at least in you know you're not you shouldn't be experiencing harm within that community that you. Or, you know, a part of a. So of a one thing that one thing that I do, mm -hmm. um, I have my, uh, so like say like for YouTube, right? Mm -hmm. So one thing that I have for my YouTube is that 
I, I'm, I have it. I have the settings such that every time I close it down and open it back up, it's, it's as if it's a new person to go onto the site. It doesn't, I don't have any sort of like initial videos recommended mm-hmm. to me. So that means like, if I want to go watch a video, when I first open it up, I have to know exactly what I'm looking for. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Or, or it just recommends me whatever's trending. You know what I mean? It's like, yep. Some, some very generic video or something. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what I do. And whether or not that's, I mean, I personally do that to limit my, my, uh, exposure to all this because i have found that these recommendations can keep you going for it mm-hmm. it's it's just a loop uh now i don't particularly like that and i would rather spend my time elsewhere so mm-hmm. i don't want that i don't want that feedback mm-hmm. i would rather go in and be very intentional with where i'm going and what, sure. what i'm looking for yeah You're and that's yeah no, that's that's something that i should i should keep in mind about is the intentionality when using social media as opposed to mm-hmm. just mindless doom scrolling but but I do think that there's a lot of complicated aspects to this because yes, the recommendation algorithms are designed to keep you online. Yes, they increase the uh, likelihood that you're going to be a part of an echo chamber. Uh, yes, they also can reduce the harm within that echo chamber because you're going to be around. You're not going to be you're going to be less likely to see ideas you don't agree with, for example. Yeah. Um, but there, you know, there's other things to consider that are trade-offs with each one of those points. Right. I think having the tools in the user's hand, yes. more tools in their hand is, is the better. Yes. Yeah. I let the user agree. turn the dials and let the, yeah, exactly. Um, I completely agree. So, <clears throat> let's, let's go to a broader topic. Okay. If you have time. Sure. Do you have time? I do. We can use this last one just to sort of close out, mm-hmm. close it out. Uh, because I'm I'm writing my next podcast on this subject, and so I want to mm. get your thoughts. Okay, uh, it's I actually changed it from the last time I told you. I told you I was doing the one uh, on a on a you do you, but I, I've sort of morphed it into um, to unity. So, okay, speak to the divide in this country. Do you think it's getting worse? Do you think it's getting better? What are we divided over, and how can we mend it? Five words or less? Yes, please. As per usual. Okay. Uh, so what are we divided over? What we're or, doing... or is you know, to the extent there is a division, where do you see the most di- division? I think the root cause of a lot of the division is not individual bad actors, but it is pernicious bad ideas that are causing kind of like we talked about in the first part of this episode where you've got these foundational values and there's the tectonic shifts happening right now where people are questioning the epistemological foundations on which our culture has been built i'm assuming by division you mean within the states right correct okay then yeah then i would say that's that is the there's a bunch of things contributing to that and that is causing a bunch of things but i think that's the most accurate general description i can give that's a pretty good one actually that's um pretty that's right in line with um what i am have been considering mm-hmm. um because i am trying to answer the question of fundamentally what is it mm-hmm. you know um i don't want to get hung up on a left and right divide right or a pepsi and coke divide mm-hmm. i'm more interested in what's the foundational thing that 
mm-hmm. is like you said, the tectonic plate that's shifting. Mm-hmm. So what was that? What does one side look like? And what is the other side? What, what is that foundational value? And what's the other one? So just give an example. Yeah, sure. Um, one example is that I think that over the course of our history, even though it's been imperfectly realized and that there's been much trouble with this, there's been a general sense that the United States is a, that our country is a positive, net positive uh, expression of an idea and realization of an idea. And it's becoming less imperfect over time. Uh, you know, the, the, the King's speech about, you know, the shining city on a hill and he may not be there when we get there. I think about that and it's like, okay, that seems, now we might have different ideas about what that shining city on the hill looks like, but we all kind of agreed the United States was a force for good in the world. And now people are, you have camps that there's a, there's not just two camps. There's a bunch of camps that have critiques of this idea. There's one camp that has a critique of this idea that says, well, look at all of our uh, post-World War II foreign interventions and how much needless death and suffering that's caused. Now, it's also probably saved some, but but be that as it may, they have some valid critiques in terms of, uh, of what they're raising. There's people who will claim, uh, yeah, well, the United States, you only think the United States has been a, is a positive expression of an ideal or certainly relative to history and, and, and nature, but, but that's only because you belong to some particular demogra- cross-sectional demographic category. And really what the United States is, is a, a real, is a realized expression of a set of ideas that seek to oppress other cross-sectional uh, demographic categories. And there was valid critique, some form of valid critique of that from a structural basis in decades and centuries past. But that's, as far as I can tell, that's some of the shallowest thinking is done there. Well, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. And so, and there's, and then there's another camp, which is something like we all fall short of the ideal. And in that sense, we are not the shining city on the hill, but we're closer than we have been. And we're closer than probably anybody else. And that's not justification to say we shouldn't progress further, but it is something to say we should have humility before our history and we should tinker with things very carefully because all other civilizations currently and across history have not been this close. So that would suggest it's much easier to be further from the shining city on the hill than it is to be closer. So we should be careful. I agree. And I let me reframe that okay. and give it in a more broad sense to my in my in my estimation. Mm-hmm. You talked about there being an ideal. I think that in some very fundamental level, there are those who do believe that there is an ideal. And so you might have mentioned, you know, or you mentioned mm-hmm. could be it could be what the US has is aspiring to be or the West in general. Um, but that there is an ideal to reach. Mm-hmm. I think there are those that recognize that. And then I, I, I believe that there are those that 
don't act that might say something like, how dare you even posit an ideal? Mm. And there's, 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 there is no ideal, maybe not even because I, I was thinking about this in terms of objectivity versus subjectivity. Yes. So mm-hmm. by claiming that there's an ideal, you're making an objective. You're saying that there's an objective mm-hmm. ideal. And it's not even that those who would oppose it are mm-hmm. necessarily sub, uh, subjective to think, well, there's, there's really, there doesn't really have to be an ideal. It's almost as if they're counter to your objective claim saying like, how dare you claim that that's the ideal? That's, that's not the ideal. And it seems like they are looking in the opposite direction rather than just simply claiming there is no ideal. Yeah. So there are people who genuinely seem to genuinely believe that question the nature of objective reality and paradoxically if they say something like well objective reality doesn't exist it's like well what you really mean is our understanding or formulation for objective reality doesn't exist because otherwise you wouldn't you couldn't make that claim but at least as far as my brain can fathom but you're right there are other people who say something like oh no no, no. your ideal is different than my ideal so it's not that we have that we all want to reduce human suffering and promote human flourishing. It's that what you mean by suffering and flourishing are different than what I mean by suffering and flourishing. Hmm. Yeah. And I think that gets back to the general sense that we talked about earlier, which is like, there's a shakeup in the epistemic foundation that is, you know, and some of the axioms that help hold up. uh, Yeah. Like, yeah. So like what I'm saying is you, there are those who could claim that the U.S. is aspiring to be an ideal. Mm-hmm. Okay. And it's not even that. So that's on one side. Let's just say if if there's a division and one side believes that the U.S. is aspiring to be an, an ideal, and that's good. Mm-hmm. It's not even that the other side is saying, no, there's no ideal mm-hmm. and it's just subjective. It's almost as if the other side is saying, that ideal is is wrong. It's not that it's good. It's that it is wrong. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The difference between, you know, what you're saying about human flourishing, what I'm saying about human flourishing, those are two. Mm-hmm. Flourishing means something different. Yeah, I agree. And I think we used to take a lot more for granted. And part of that might be that certain ideas were prematurely precluded and they shouldn't have been. And we slowly unearth, I say we slowly unearth those. And as you say, once they, once we've reintegrated the true aspect of that in a way that makes sense, those ideas will catch fire. And given a sufficient time horizon, they'll be more appropriately realized. But that's not typically the revolutionary mindset. The revolutionary mindset is much more apt to burn things down and assume mm-hmm. the utopia will be ushered in thereafter. We can talk a lot about the utopia. I have so much to say. I'm going to de- dedicate an entire episode on that that notion alone i think because it's it's worth mentioning yeah anyway do you have anything else said uh no other than just i I assume this will be out sometime before the end of 2022 so please feel free to join us and uh, i know you'll do your little outro at the end but uh, we have a a network-wide live stream coming up in december sometime so that's right you're formally invited it will be Mm. our first one the first one we all sit down and 
people get to kind of see behind the scenes. We'll have some updates on the network. And if you are someone who feels like you have something that you need to say and you're willing to figure out a, a way, if you're willing to dedicate the time to figure out a way to say it rigorously and honestly and about the topic you're interested in, even if it's not a long-term podcast, even if it's just a few episodes and you're interested in having a network help put that out there, reach out to us. There's instructions on our website, freedomcast.us. Go to the contact page and uh, or the join the network page, either one, and uh, let us know. And we'd be happy to help be an active part of putting more ideas out there and yes making our our um, hr and trust and safety department will (laughs) review and uh get back to you yes he sure will (laughs) (laughs) and with that we conclude the first crossover episode i want to thank samuel vernon for his time insightful questions and friendly banter From Is to Ought is a Freedomcast Network production. To learn more, go to freedomcast.locals.com or visit our website at freedomcast.us. Above all else, stay honest, stay rigorous, and keep speaking freely.